Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Everybody knows who listens to the program that when you hear that music, something big is about to happen. And when you hear that music, it means that I forgot to shut the music off. So joining me uh, from Quantico is um, somebody who served with me, but he he doesn't even remember me, right? And so... Kyle Gentry, like people say, well, you know Kyle. I'm like, yeah, I know Kyle. So we're talking yesterday, and Kyle says... Well, we served together. And I'm like, you don't even remember me. So, Kyle, let's get this out of the way. Um, you're such a big timer on the 1st Marine Division staff in Ramadi in 2004. Um, you do not even remember General Mattis' staff. It's like, I know I was insignificant. No recollection. For the record, the more we talked yesterday, the more uh, I was like, yeah, now I remember this guy. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. I'm wearing flip-flops just for the record. The uh, So Kyle and I are actually battle buddies, right? And um, let's tell everybody uh, a little about you, Kyle. Uh, and first of all, what are you doing now? So right now I'm the vice president for business affairs at Marine Corps University, um, which, as I often say, impresses my mom, doesn't impress my wife, and my dog's always impressed, but I don't think she knows what I do for a living. Um but uh, basically, it's just all things every, everybody complains about around here. So administration, oh. fiscal, IT, facilities, uh, security management, civilian manpower, all that sort of stuff. So, But I uh, spent 30 years in the Marine Corps, and uh, my last tour was actually here at the Marine Corps University as the director of the Marine Corps War College, which I got to say, every tour was rewarding. But that one was special in that it gave me an opportunity to kind of give back to that next generation of senior leaders uh, going through there. So, um, but like I say, all rewarding experiences to include serving with you. There in, you go. Uh, Vermont. Well done. Well done. Let's talk about you born and raised where? Uh, well, my dad was a Marine, so, you know, home was where the sea bag landed. So it was, uh, all over the country, some overseas time, uh, but my last eight years I spent uh, growing up in Kansas, uh, which so I've got a little bit of that Midwestern part. But haven't been back since I uh, left at 18. And, you know, so once again, home is where your sea bag is. A lot of kids who are sons or daughters of Marines decide not to join. Um, why? What influenced you to join? How does the Marine Corps get on your radar as a as a young guy uh, looking for a career? So, you know, when your dad's a Marine, you're obviously exposed to it. And he was a career Marine. And so, in fact, I actually spent half a kindergarten through third grade here at Quantico. And so I was surrounded by these guys who were all Vietnam vets. And, in fact, the guy in the apartment two, uh, one floor up was a Korean War and a Vietnam War vet. And so just kind of fully steeped in it and, you know, read books about it, was really excited and then I decided, hey, I want to, you know, I want to 
go join the Marine Corps, make a career of it. So um, I uh, went to the Naval Academy. Uh, my father, who wanted to be a, a Navy officer, uh, he grew up on Victory at Sea and that sort of stuff. And, right. you know, but um, ended up in the Marine Corps. He was colorblind, so he couldn't be a, a Naval officer anyway, because that whole red green thing is kind of important for port and starboard. Right. And uh, so he said, hey, you really ought to consider the Navy. And I'm like, all right. I gave it 24 hours thought and realized <laughs> there's no way I could be a sailor. And uh, so the Marines was a calling and it's, uh, you know, spent 30 years doing it. So it's obviously it's in the blood. It's kind of like malaria. It's once it's in your blood, it never goes away. <laughs> what about uh, the decision become, to become an artilleryman? So that was also driven by my dad, who is a tanker uh, for the first half of his career. And so he's like, oh, I got to be a tanker. And I went to the basic school going thing. Ah, I'm going to be an infantryman. That's that's really where it's at. And frankly, which we all know uh, is true. Yeah. Much of my instructors were kind of not the kind of guys I necessarily want to hang around with. Our artillery instructor was, uh, you know, a pretty cool guy. And I said, yeah, I can hang with a guy like that. So uh, I decided to go to art artillery, which there's a little bit of a rivalry between artillery and tankers. So that uh, it allowed me to not follow. Any, not anymore, by the way, in case oh, you're yeah, looking. Exactly. Uh, it allowed me to follow a Marine Corps path without actually following in my dad's footsteps. So kind of blazed a, a, a parallel path, as, as it were. Now, we have common friends. We were, yesterday when we were talking, uh, you were talking about Mike Marletto. Um, oh, yeah. Also, you're probably familiar with a guy named Mike Frazier. Oh, yeah. Right? Much more personality than intellect, Mike Frazier. Um, <laughs> he also in Ramadi at, when we were there uh, across the river uh, in, uh, at Camp Ramadi. Um, I have great stories about Mike Frazier moving those generators from Jordan into Baghdad going eight miles an hour. And his neurosis about that, um, and so uh, so uh, your life as an artilleryman. You, uh, I mean, you had a role in the march up, uh, and uh, also uh, back there where you and I crossed paths uh, in yeah. in the spring of two thousand four. So, give me a few uh, career highlights of uh, your career as an artilleryman. Uh, well, I started off in Okinawa, and. Um wanted to go overseas right away didn't realize that there were other options to go overseas besides okinawa but uh and then it was a split tour okinawa and hawaii uh decided i wanted to stay in the fleet or do fleet like things and so i uh i was already jump qualified so i said hey i'll, I'll volunteer for anko and everybody told me hey that's a career killer you'll never survive if you go there so i said well it's travel and adventure so i still want to do it so i uh, spent three years in ANCO, deployed to Iraq to uh, provide comfort there, um, numerous other uh, exercises, and then came back, was battery commander, uh, was a fire support officer with the MU for a while, um, where we did the NEO in Liberia, so that was kind of interesting. Right. And uh, then stayed in the regiment, uh, went off to command staff, Went out to 1st Marine Division, was the XO of 211, and then um, uh, I got promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, the boot Lieutenant Colonel Artilleryman becomes the Lago, and so as the S4, I cut my teeth on the march up, uh, got a whole new appreciation of what what is meant by uh, combat load, because there's no real definition, and I found out it's as much stuff as you can cram on your trucks, 
And uh, so that was high adventure. Came back, um, been redeployed. Uh, that's where we were together in Ramadi on the staff doing fires, IO and solar affairs for a period of time. Um, redeployed you know, you, for a you, said, you said something that was interesting that I don't, many people don't know, but you know, we go back and, and it's just going to be this, um, coin or, um, low intensity conflict. You can hang a whole bunch of na- terms on it. And the Jack of all trades, right. Are, is our artillery regiment. I mean, sure. whether it was route security, uh, on mobile, uh, or Michigan, wherever we needed to surge capacity, you know, the artillery uh, battalions that were there, uh, they were jacks of all trades. And with I.O. And, and all the other things they did, but you guys were Semper Gumby over there. Jack, in fact, it started uh, when we got to Baghdad during the uh, initial push, and we realized we're, we're transitioning from phase three to phase four. Nobody had really planned for it. There was looting going on. And they said, well, we need to establish this CMOC thing. Hey, 11th Marines, you guys go do that. And then in the staff, it was like, you know, the three was like, eh, I don't want to do it. Hey, hey, four, why don't you do it? And um, I'd had a little bit of experience with it because during Provide Comfort in northern Iraq, we'd actually established a CMOC. And I remember General Gardner, uh, Army General, former Marine, though, uh, got this report that these NGOs were coming up the hill. And he turns to me and goes, and I'm a, I'm a boot Marine captain at the time. And he's like, so captain, uh, what are these NGOs? I'm like, uh, sir, I pretty sure they're not able gunfire officers. So I really don't know what they are. And you're a general. Shouldn't you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it turns out non-governmental organizations and which has become kind of ubiquitous. Everybody knows the term now, no, uh, but yeah, it, not then. But uh, so I was able to apply that and plus kind of the Mew mindset of just they just get her done uh, in Baghdad. So we were able to get the water back on, um, work with the locals. uh, Pretty rewarding, Uh, perhaps not as rewarding as firing a regimental time on target in the middle of the night with wrap and DPI or wrap and uh, base burn. But in a uh, different in a different way, in a different way, different way. Yeah, you would have said NGO years ago, and somebody would have thought it was somebody Vietnamese, right? Sure. Like, well, somebody, a Vietnamese organization's here? <laughs> I mean, no, absolutely no clue to what it was. Absolutely no no clue. The uh, And so you give me, you were talking about Mike Marletto yesterday. Tell me sure. a Mike Marletto story because he listens, so preferably a bad so, one. Oh, okay, well. I'm going to lead no. off by saying that uh, his preparation of the 11th Marine Regiment set the division up for success, uh, for sure, for OIF-1. And also, he had that kind of coup we we talk about where he could see the route, you know, as, as the MEF planners and division planners were like, well, hey, what access and march should we go and all this sort of stuff? He said, well, hey, take a look at these threat rings. There's your access right there. So, you know, brilliant uh, operationally. Uh, a real pain in my rear end as the logistics officer. So, but here's the story you wanted. <laughs> we are preparing for this big NBC fight. And so the headquarters battery splits it up, you know, port and starboard in the morning. Uh, folks are going to mop four, hump out to this uh, tent, get gassed, do mop uh, gear exchange, and then hump back. And so, you know, I go out in the morning, you know, and he's in the afternoon group, 
And so, but he, he'd been on my case about these chronographs. Chronographs are basically a radar gun for a, a cannon. And so it measures the speed of the, the round and all that sort of stuff. Very important if you're going to do accurate predicted fires. So but he's on my case. You know, they're broken and uh, how come they're not fixed? And so I grabbed the maintenance management officer. And I said, hey, here's what I want you to do. On one piece of paper, 10 pitch, I want you to start start out slow, but then go into that really heavy MMO speak about how we're fixing the problem. And, uh, you know, so that I get halfway through and my, I just, my head hurts. He goes, he looks at me funny and I explain it to him again. He goes, oh, I know what you need. I got it, sir. So he runs off, comes back a few hours later, reading down, I get halfway down the page, ah, get that brain freeze. I'm like, perfect. And so I slap a sticky on it, basically says, um, a chronograph's broken, parts are in the way, we're fixing the supply system, they'll be back up in, a, in two weeks, three weeks, whatever it was. And I put it on his uh, in his inbox. He comes back from being gassed and, and whatnot, and his hair's all up and, you know, point in different directions. His eyes are red and teary and snot's coming out of his nose from the CS. And he throws that memo on my desk and he goes, I like your explanation better. And he never bugged me about logistics ever again. <laughs> if I said something, he said, hey, good to go. So, um, but yeah, he probably the greatest, one of the greatest artillerymen the Marine Corps has ever produced. Um, yeah. Phenomenal, phenomenal Marine. What about Mike Frazier? So Mike and I go back ways. So in fact, he's the one that passed the uh, color to me. Uh, oh, really? To 11. So he and I were in 211 together. Uh, yeah, one of the most colorful characters out there. Um, many of his phrases I would not uh, repeat uh, for fear of, you know, I am a government employee. <laughs> I have a certain image to uh, maintain. Um, but yeah, he he has influenced a whole generation of Marines. And, you know, through his energy, enthusiasm, and colorfulness, uh, He's made the Marine Corps a, a brighter place, frankly. No, uh, again, I, I crossed paths with him in Ramadi. And, uh, and, and honestly, he, uh, his, his battalion has to take these, I think there were two generators. And the whole route had to be surveyed because they were so massive. <clears throat> and if you can imagine people shooting RPGs at you and all kinds of other stuff, their, their max speed limit is like eight or nine miles an hour. And they go from the Jordanian border into downtown Baghdad. And I remember talking to them because uh, people had to lift up power lines. And you only could go against over certain bridges that had been surveyed for. And he calls me and they're going across the Tartar Canal. And he goes, Mac, this bridge is not going to hold these things. And I said, well, sir, that's the route. So get your camera out, and when they go in the Tartar Canal, get a good picture of it, okay? Because that there is no other way. And then the night before he goes into Baghdad, he calls, he goes, and and you could tell he was nervous, and he wanted to talk to Colonel Dunford at the time. Mm-hmm. So I talked to him first. I said, "How's it going?" He said, "Oh, it's great. We're ro- rolling into Baghdad at eight miles an hour, you know, tomorrow, and uh, it ought to be very, very interesting." And uh, and and I said, "Well, look, make sure you have your earplugs in." And good luck. Don't fuck it up, Mike. <laughs> and he says, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And But they went into Baghdad, and nobody shot anything at them. They hmm. took these gigantic, if you can imagine such a thing, in 2004, no less, uh, maybe the Iraqis 
they knew that it was a money-making enterprise, and so they probably left it alone because somebody had put the word out that, hey, <laughs> I'm going to be clipping some off this, so uh, so don't mess with it. The, um, I sent Kyle an email. Kyle has, uh, has, been, has had the privilege of having a, a very, very cool seat in the whole Iwo Jima, um, uh, how would I, extravaganza that's played out in the Marine Corps, you know, in, in recent years. And, uh, and so I wanted to have him on. And I was talking yesterday about uh, the book called Investigating Iwo, which if you're a history person, if you're a Marine and you like, you know, our combat history, uh, write the historical division and get a copy of it. It's free still. Um, so Kyle, let's talk about that. How do you, um, how do you get involved? Uh, how does this darken your doorstep, uh, if you will? So it was December of 2015 and I was the director of the war college at the time. So still on active duty. And, uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Charlie Niemeyer, who was the director of the history division at the time, uh, comes over to me and says, Hey, I want to show you some stuff and get your opinion on this. And he said, we, you know, we get a lot of folks claiming to be flag raisers. You know, that's my dad. That's my granddad. That's me. That's somebody else. I was there. He says, yeah, we get these all the time. He said, but you know, these folks have sent me this, this really compelling material. And I just wanted your opinion on it. So I, I looked through it. Now, do you know, like, do you know Charlie from a different life experience or how do you know him? So I first met him at uh, the Naval War College. I was okay. going through command staff, and right. he was one of the instructors there, right. or professors. Um, and so, and then when I got back here, I just immediately kind of rehooked up with him. Didn't know him very well then, but you know, immediately uh, just got along with him very well. So, um, you know, I, I look at this; it's photographic evidence that uh, Dustin Spence and uh, Eric Foley and, and a guy named Crowley have put together. Uh, they've gone out. They they got some photographic forensics folks uh, to to do some stuff, and so really compelling evidence that shows that the person that we thought was in Doc Bradley's position is really PFC Sousley, who was previously identified right behind him, and the guy in Sousley's position is definitely a guy named Harold Keller, and you know all sorts of things point to it. You know, it's they they show a a dangling broken helmet strap, um, camouflage patterns, things of that nature. And so I, you know, after looking at it for about an hour or so, I, I go back to Charlie. I'm like, hey, this is compelling evidence. I'm I'm convinced right now, I said, but um, we really need to raise this to Big Marine Corps' attention and, you know, look into it. And so we went to the the commanding general, president of Marine Corps University, talked to her. She was convinced. And so we drafted it all up, sent it up to the course Marine Corps, and uh, with the recommendation that we form a board. Because in the wake or the, well, I guess, yeah, the wake of World War II, um, and folks who have read Flags of Our Fathers or, or seen the movie are familiar with uh, Mrs. Harlan Block going, uh, I'd recognize my boy's butt anywhere, you know. And she, so she's convinced that's her son. Uh, PFC Ira Hayes confirms that. And so in, back in 1946, you know, they've got Ira Hayes saying, yeah, that's, that's your son. That's Harlan Block. 
The dad writes a letter to the con- his congressman. His congressman then, of course, writes to the Marine Corps, compels the commandant of the Marine Corps, General Vandegrift, to look into it. He then points uh, or assigns Major General uh, Pedro Devalier to uh, form a board. He forms a board. They look at the, the evidence there. So they look at a video that was taken at the same time. They look at different photographs. They go back and they talk to uh, Doc Bradley. They talk to uh, Gagnon, talk to Hayes. Uh, initially, Gagnon and, and Bradley kind of stick to the original uh, identification of Sergeant Hansen in that position. Uh, they're finally compelled by the force of Ira Hayes' argument. Um, so they both then relent. And, you know, we've subsequently looked at photographs, and it's very clearly that's Harlan Block. So they changed the record. So Harlan Block is the, the Marine at the base of the flag, and all the other folks are identified. And those identifications stand for about 70 years until 2016. Well, it's just shy of that, or about that. So... Yeah, almost exactly, because it was December of 2015 when they presented us the evidence. So uh, the Commandant said, reached out to uh, Lieutenant General Chan Hewley, uh, United States Marine Corps retired, asked him if he would want, uh, if he would chair the board. Uh, he did. And so we formed the board. We look at this evidence. We look at other evidence to corroborate it. And we concur. And so then the identifications then change. Bradley is now out of the picture. Uh, Sousley moves up. Schultz replaces Sousley. But as we're going through the board, it was just, you can imagine Marines don't like messing with Marine Corps history. And the fact that, you know, the best-selling flags of our followers had come out, you know, Clint Eastwood had produced the movie. And so. Well, we, you know, when we're, I mean, we're not talking about our history. Okay. Right. We're talking about like inside the tabernacle of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. I mean, we're talking about the Holy of Holies when you're going to mess with the statue, the most iconic, the seventh war bond image, right? The most iconic image that comes out of World War II. So, and, you know, and possibly the Navy's going to get bounced out of it. Um, I I, want to go back and just revisit the Devaya board. The assets that they, I mean, obviously very limited in what they could do. The forensics that you guys will ultimately get to in this, that you guys can ultimately avail yourself of, uh, fundamentally different. You know, talk about the limitations of the Devaya board and, and, and what they had to d- deal with, and which ultimately comes becomes for seven decades, you know, the historical record. So they relied heavily on the statements of uh, – Doc Bradley, PFC, or uh, Rene Gagnon, and Ira Hayes. And so you had that record. Then you had the, the, the iconic photograph itself, a few other photographs that Rosenthal had taken. Also, there was a, uh, a Sergeant Bill Janoust who was, a, uh, was taking motion picture film, and he was right next to, within arm's length of, um, of Rosenthal when he took the photo. And so we have contemporaneous film of of the um, of the flag raising, and then also photographs of a bunch of Marines around the second flag uh, in a photo that's become known as the gung ho photo. So they had that to look at and and make comparisons, that sort of thing. If you look at the you know the picture of that Rosenthal took, 
not a single face is facing the camera. And in fact, when Rosenthal took the, the shot, he, out of the corner of his eye, he saw the flag starting to move. He whips up his speed graphic, clicks it, uh, warns Janelle saying, hey, Bill, there it goes. And so he starts filming. He doesn't think he has a photo. So he doesn't even bother taking names. Uh, he just goes on, takes a few more pictures, gung-ho picture, and then goes back down the hill to, to get his film uh, process or uh, sent off to Guam. So that's all they had. And, you know, probably a little bit of target fixation too. And, you know, the only Marine in question now is, is uh, the person at the, uh, the base of the flag, you know, Hanson versus Block. And so... Yeah, they went out, they took affidavits again, and and came to the determination. Um, what I think was really uh, significant coming out of it is the commandant of the Marine Corps, General Vandegrift, was, felt compelled to write the parents of, of uh, Sergeant Hansen. Hansen had been killed in action on Iwo Jima. So uh, as had Block, as had Sousley, as had Strank. And so he writes a letter to the dad, and at the the, the last paragraph is, I am personally convinced of the thoroughness and fairness which characterize this investigation, and I hope you will agree that in fairness to all parties, the Marine Corps was obligated to correct the mistaken identification. I personally wish that they had never been identified, but in, as you mentioned, you know, it's an iconic photograph, and so when it hit the front pages, you know, the president of the United States, President Roosevelt, you know, said, had determined that he, these guys would be the great, you know, the great symbol of the seventh war loan drive. And so the United States had just, you know, it defeated the Germans in, in Europe. We're getting ready to invade mainland Japan. We knew we need a lot of money. We're afraid there's going to be some donor fatigue. And so this was a, an all out effort critical to the nation. And so they, they shoot a telegram out to the uh, fleet and said, hey, identify or bring, send these six flag raisers in the Rosenthal photograph back to D.C. right away. So by the time the, the telegram gets it out there, Easy Company had already, and 228 had already uh, left the island and they were embarked on the Wing Darrow on their way to Hawaii to prepare for the invasion of Japan. And so the telegram gets there, and there have been some in initial identifications, but the, you know, the first sergeant, you know, and I can only imagine you know, how he's phrasing this, but, uh, hey, which of you mugs was, it was in this photograph? And Gagnon, who had previously been identified as, as one of the folks, said, hey, hey that's me. Um, nobody else says anything. And so they're, they're in the lagoon there at Inuitak, you know, they get him on a seaplane, get him on a plane. 96 hours later, he shows up at headquarters Marine Corps or National Air Airport. He's met by a PAO, a Lieutenant Colonel Hagenau, who whisks him away to headquarters, shows him the photograph and says, hey, Marine, I need you to identify the Marines in this photograph. And so he kind of, as described, kind of tentatively goes, you know, going from right to left, you know, at the base, he goes, well, that's Sergeant Hansen, uh, that's, uh, Doc Bradley, uh, on this side of the flagpole, uh, that's Sousley on this side of the flagpole and the other side is Sergeant Strank. And at the very end is, uh, or he just leaves it at that. 
And so Hagenau, you know, basically says, hey, there's six people in this photograph. You only named four and you didn't include yourself. So try again. And so this time he goes, well, it's, it's Hanson, Bradley. I'm on the other side, Sousley, and then uh, Strank. He goes, okay, that's five. How about the six? I said, well, I can't tell you. Well, what do you mean you can't tell me? Well, he threatened me with bodily harm. Well, eventually, you know, the, the rank game, you know, Lieutenant Colonel beats PFC and, you know, Gagnon is compelled to tell him it was uh, PFC Ira Hayes. Now, Kyle so, and I were talking about this yesterday. Yeah. Gagnon, no fool, right? Ira Hayes, right? right? It, was he a Raider or a Paramarine? Uh, former paramarine and uh, already a combat vet when he gets to Iwo Jima, and so he uh, tough character by by all accounts. And so when he threatens, when he says, "I'll kill you," there's no <laughs> right. Renee Gagnon is like he knows he'll do it, right? He yep. knows he'll do it, and so Gagnon smart in initial his initial attempt, uh, which doesn't last very long. And I just want to say this about Gagnon: he is he is a uh, Another tragic figure in this. Uh, what stands out is Gagnon includes himself in that photograph, and he's not in it. Everybody else is kind of hauled into this drama. He stands out, and it's really, it's really sad. Uh, you know, I remember when when the second, um, well, when the Bowers board came out, and and uh, you know his 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 own son who grew up in the shadow of all of this. His father, an Iwo Jima flag raiser, one of the few survivors, the only one that talked about it ultimately is not in the photograph and it's part of this story you know and it, it certainly doesn't diminish his 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 service on the island uh but it is a part of the story that is atypical from the rest and i just want to footnote that and and i know you and i were talking yesterday it's uncomfortable to even even talk about that yeah i mean he's a fellow marine so um yes he said he was in the photo and he was not in the photo right that's not disputed uh, but we'll, I'll also add, hey, he landed with the rest of his company on the 19th of February. He was a company runner, exposing himself to fire routinely. He carried the second flag to the summit, and he safely carried the first flag back down to the 228 CP, where it was secured in the battalion safe. So we have the flag because of him. Uh, he... There's no indication his duty was anything less than honorable in combat. And, you know, of his three years as a reserve Marine, 14 months of it was spent overseas. So it's, you know, he served his country. And frankly, when he came back and was part of the seventh war loan drive, he represented the Marine Corps well. And that war loan drive raised more money than all the previous war loan drives. And, that's a strategic significance. So when you know, you know, former Commandant Krulak talks about, you know, the strategic corporal, well, I can point to the strategic, you know, PFC Gagnon and the strategic pharmacist second mate Bradley and the strategic PFC Hayes. Well, Hayes gets bumped off the tour relatively early on, so I'll just leave it at, because uh, he had his own personal demons. But right. yeah, so to your point where Gagnon is vocal about it, uh, Hayes is not. And Hayes is on the ship when Daskalaxis is trying to f- figure out who was in the photo. So now a telegram goes out to Hawaii going, hey, send Hayes here. 
they tell Hayes, hey, pack your bag. You know, you're heading back to D.C. He says, I'm not going. And they're like, what What part of your going do you not understand? He goes, I'm not going. They had to drag him to the hospital room of Lieutenant Keith Wells, uh, who had been wounded on the island. And it's Wells that convinced him, hey, that's your duty, that's your place. Because everything I've read about Hayes, he, he, was, he was a Marine's Marine. He was truly dedicated to his Marine. Didn't want to leave his unit. That was his family. And so... To be ripped out of that, you know, I think that was very challenging. That was tough for him. Um, add to the fact that it's important to keep in mind the Rosenthal photo depicts the second flag. On it. It's a replacement flag. And it's all it is now is a working party replacing the flag. If you're going to talk about a flag raising, you know, talk about the first one. But the problem with the first one is, you know, we don't have the same photographic record. And it's not the perfectly framed, you know, action shot that, that Rosenthal captures. And so, and as you said, it's everywhere. You know, even non-Marine units use that symbol. Um, in the wake of 9-11, you had, you know, the symbol of firefighters right. raising right. the flag. Right. I mean, it just, it is so burned into the American psyche. And that extends to, uh, you know, when we identify Schultz as a, uh, is a flag raiser in the Hewley board. Schultz is severely wounded, abdominal wounds. He's recovering from wounds uh, while all this stuff is going on. He gets out, joins the postal service there in Los Angeles, marries late in life, doesn't talk about it. Well, the only record we have of him talking about it is him talking to his stepdaughter and some program was on about Iwo Jima or the flag raising. And he says, yeah, I helped raise the flag. And she goes, Harold, you're, you're a hero. And he goes, no, just a Marine. And as near as we can tell, that's the only time Schultz mentions it. And by the way, Schultz never goes to history division to say, hey, I'm one of those guys, like all these other claims that, you know, accumulated over 70 years. So Kyle, roll so, that up into Ira Hayes's psyche in terms of, this has a devastating effect. I mean, he drinks his way off that tour, which is historical yep. record. And but here's a guy with multiple, uh, you know, island, you know, fighting done. Um, now he gets pulled out of his family to come back, and he gets called a hero for being on a working party. He's just lost. I think one of the most emotional things, and I think we've all experienced this, is is the the description in the book that John Bradley writes of Ira Hayes, John Bradley, Renee Gagnon meeting the mother of Mike Strank the, in, I think it's in Philadelphia, and they all lose their shit, right? I mean, and Ira Hayes becomes a, a basket case because, you know, it's we can stand there for our memorial services and be stoic and know that we have to go back out and we have to get it on again, and we're going to find whoever did this, and we're going to kill or capture him. And we're going to find their friends who helped them. And we're going to kill or capture them. We know that. To, to, to see families and to see the other side of this is brutal. So Ira Hayes comes back. He's being called a hero, right, for, for being part of a working party. Talk about, I mean, your thoughts on the impact on him relative to that. Well, I, I think that's huge. And you see that with other folks, too. So I'll build a little bit of watch, build the watch to tell you the time which is a bad habit of mine. But um, so when we identify Keller 
as one of the flag raisers in the Bowers board, he never mentions it either. Well, he writes a letter to his wife mentioning it, but when he comes back, he that's not him. That's He doesn't talk about being a flag raiser. In fact, he doesn't talk about his service on Iwo Jima much at all. Um, but he had a better support network. You know, he had a, a wife, uh, a son. In fact, he learns of his son's birth there on Iwo Jima. Um, but he goes back. He's a little league coach. He, you know, he's just a hardworking Midwestern young man there in Brooklyn, Iowa. And uh, he doesn't talk about it, but Hayes didn't have that support network. And you know, those are the Marines I worry about the most, the ones that leave the Marine Corps. And if they go back home where there's nobody with a shared experience, nobody that they can talk to, um, it's just going to eat them up. They have nobody to share that trauma with that combat experience and you know i don't see how you could ever have those you can't have the same bonds you have with a marine in combat with any other human being i mean it's just it's something special and if you don't have that you don't understand it and you can't talk to it and all that sort of stuff so he he was dealing with a lot of trauma we call it ptsd now and um you know unfortunately alcohol is you know self-medicating is well, it's, it's, it's the way response. we do it, right? It's the way we do it. I mean, I don't mean just the Marine Corps, the way our culture does it. And I, I tell you that probably close to 80% of us, right, we fake it and we and we self-medicate with alcohol. It's the way our culture does it as Marines. And, and the way the larger culture deals it deals with it, and Iowa Hayes with his burdens. Not And we've seen Vietnam veterans go down the same path. But I think that, that you, I think that's very well pointed out, to be idolized after everything you've seen for being part of a working party, right? No, I know what a hero is. I'm not, a, I'm, you know, these guys, and I think in the movie, Ira Hayes says it, I'm not a hero, right? I'm not a hero. And just the pain and anguish. I want to I wanna talk about the, the first Hewley board now. So in the first Hewley board, it's Bradley Schultz, right? Brad, and I want to talk about Bradley's special burden. And then, and then the confusion relative to all of that. So talk about the, the task of Hewley Board 1. I can't believe you got to sit on all three of these two, by the way. It still pisses me off, but wow. Yeah, well, I had, after the first one, I talked myself onto the other two. So, Well, actually, the, the second one was the first flag raising, and that, that was just General Neller saying, hey, you guys did the second one. Hey, take care of that first one for me. And so Put the board was the already there, so we did that one. But, um, yeah, so the – you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's this kind of reluctance to change Marine Corps history and reluctance to pull Bradley out because you know, it's kind of nice to have five Marines and a sailor, the Navy Marine Corps team, you know, but, you know, facts are facts. And so we pull them out. But it's important to note. Uh, so if you read Flags of Fathers, uh, there's a letter that he writes his parents on the 26th of February. So three days after uh, they take Suribachi. And he talks about having a little to do with raising the flag on, on Iwo Jima and how he's proud of it, how he's proud of his service with the Marines and all that sort of stuff. Um, and the photographic record shows that he helped raise that first flag. So he's, he's a legit flag raiser. But he's also a bona fide hero. On the 21st of February, so two days before they get to the summit of Suribachi, a Marine infantryman is wounded. Hayes, not Hayes, sorry, Bradley goes to the wounded Marine, 
under a barrage of mortar fire, crossfire from the enemy, realizes that uh, you know, the, the Marine's going to go into shock. He you know, puts a bottle of plasma up on the rifle shoved into the deck and you know, basically tells everybody else, hey, stay, stay undercover, don't come out here. And then after he stabilizes the Marine, he drags the Marine to safety. He's a bona fide hero. And so when he is called back, so after Gagnon identifies him there in D.C., uh, Bradley's recovering from wounds in Oakland, California. Uh, He's been shot in the leg or uh, wounds to the legs. So the Bureau of Medicine says, hey, how about we send, can we send Bradley to you? Absolutely. So Bradley gets sent to be part of the war uh, loan drive as well. He, I think, pretty rapidly realizes he's not in that photo. But by now, you know, Gagnon has set the record. The Marine Corps set the record. It's published in the newspapers. Here are the identifications. As I mentioned before, Sergeant Strank, Corporal Block, PFC Sousley are all killed in action. And so, you know, I think Bradley's basically told whether or not he identified it at that point or not, I don't know, but I'm sure he realized it soon. But I, I'm absolutely convinced he felt it was his duty to do what his country told him to do. And his country told him, hey, represent the Navy and Marine Corps, represent the services, and go out and raise money for the war effort. I mean, if, you can, later, ima- if you can imagine, I mean, you know, they're, I mean, they are the toast of the town of D.C., right? I mean, they're... <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, meeting people that they would never meet in seven lives, right? Uh, Absolutely. There. And, um, I mean, just the, the heady experience of, you know, when I get yanked out of this, I'm from what, Appleton, Wisconsin, or I can't remember, right? And, and, and now, right. And, and I, uh, and now I'm in Washington, D.C. I've got the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of War at the time. Uh, and all these people, I mean, what a heady experience. And I'm going to stand up and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not me. After it's already been published, I mean, you can see, especially guys like that who were, you know, who who raised to do their duty and had just done it. Hey, Doc, we need you. This is you, right? And yeah. uh, and then and, and that begins an unfolding tragedy. And I'm sure in Bradley's mind, like, yeah, I'll do this and I'm going home and that'll be the end of this, right? Except it's not. And of course, people want to interview him for the rest of his life. And there's stories of him telling his family, hey, just tell him I'm out fishing or something. I'm I'm not here. Um, I did hear one recorded interview of him. um, And he's very circumspect on how he talks about it. Uh, There's not an outright, you know, rah-rah claim. He talks about other people, of course, and their service and sacrifice. Uh, I truly believe that he felt that that was the nation's secret just to keep with him and not bring discredit upon anybody else or any of the misidentifications, that sort of thing. He is, uh, Kyle, he's, um, he's probably one of the most distinct, his uniform is one of the most distinct on Mount Suribachi that day, right? Because that's the first, the first pictures I, the first time I probably see this is in the summer of, of 2016. And, and, and I start to do programs on it. And I see the article that links something to the the Omaha World Herald, I think it is. And they had these digitized photos that when you put your mouse over the photo, it expanded the photo. And um, I'd honestly never seen images like that. So especially of this. And 
I looked at Bradley's picture for two seconds and said, oh, my God, he's not in the picture. He's not in the picture. That's how distinct Bradley's uniform is on top of Mount Suribachi. And so I was, Kyle and I were talking yesterday, and I said, you know, Bradley had to be sitting there at the dedication go, and these Marines are idiots, man. That is that that uniform looks nothing like me. And at some point, somebody's going to figure this out. I mean, and, and if you look at a lot of pictures of him that day, he doesn't smile in too many of them. He smiles in a few of them, but not too many of them. And you could only imagine what's going through him when somebody find, puts two and two together and they see that that's not me. I'm going to catch holy hell for this, right? So his own special um, little version of hell uh, that lines this, you know, him being a hero. So the the other guy I want to talk about a little bit is, is Harold Keller. So he he's the one we identified to replace Gagnon in the Bowers board uh, about two years ago. So he, and you can only imagine the Marine Corps' reaction to, hey, we get this new evidence. It's pretty clear that it's not Gagnon, you know, who is who is the guy that's always said he was a. Well, hold on. Raider. I want you. To, I want you to back up. So you put the you put the f- first Huley board together, right? And then General Nolish says, um, hey, could you please this thing up and, and put it to bed too, using the same metrics and things and, the, and getting us to the same level of granularity is a term that exists in the Marine Corps, right, that we're a little right. bit of confidence with. Um, and so talk about when you hear, when do you hear, because I, I was telling Kyle yesterday, I'm interviewing Stephen Foley about this thing has now been adjudicated. And we're having this interview. And then kind of in the middle or to the, the the last third of it, he says, but Mac, I need to tell you this. There's more to follow. And and, and, that's, and I said, what do you mean there's more to follow? He says, I can't say anything more. But there's other developments. I said, what? And I, I was stunned. So how do you find – when does that come to you? So – it, it takes a little bit of a, a circuitous route. So Dustin Spence, who was another kind of motive force behind this, sends a 102-slide PowerPoint presentation to uh, retired General Orlo Steele and says, hey, we've got this compelling evidence that uh, that's not Gagnon. It's a guy named Harold Keller. And it's really well laid out and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it also supports strength being there. Strength's the hardest one to identify, but we've We've got that. We've gotten to that now. Um, but uh, so Steele goes, um, "Hey, General Hewley, you you did this last time here." So he throws it over to General Hewley. General Hewley, I, I can only imagine his reaction. I've known him for years, so but uh, <laughs> yeah, probably exasperation. But so he, he looks at, it, he sends it to the fellow members of the Hewley board and says, "Hey, what do you think?" And a similar reaction to what I had when I got the the earlier uh, information, like, uh, that's a compelling case. We're going to have to do another board. Once again, you know, kind of guided by General Vandergriff's, you know, words of, you know, if we're going to do it, we got to get it right. And you can only imagine the reaction at the highest levels of the Marine Corps. You know, now it's a new comment. Hey, didn't you guys just do take care of this two years ago? Uh, yes, sir. We thought we did and uh, new evidence and we really ought to get this right. And, and so going to the board that time, we were super, super meticulous about how we approached it. So 
Dr. Robertson, Brianne Robertson, um, spent countless hours up at the National Archives, up at the Burns Collection up in Carlisle Barracks, going through old photographs. Um, we even, once we assembled w w enough of the information, we requested the FBI's assistance in this. And so working with their photographic forensics folks, um, they were able to help correlate things. And they did it just strictly from what the photograph said. And what the board was able to do is provide kind of that context. What makes sense in that situation? What do squad leaders, sergeant strengths do? Um, what's the rest of the record say? And so combining those two gave us a very high level of, uh, of certainty. Um, the FBI, it was kind of neat working with the FBI. And this was a way that they were able to kind of do correlations and kind of test the software because we had known data points and all that sort of stuff. So kind of a win-win for them. They certainly helped us out and then they were able to, to test their software. So, and we all know uh, the, we all know the incestuous relationship between the FBI and the Marine Corps, right? It, it, uh, Marines yeah. all over that thing. Yeah. When I graduated from the basic school, it was in the <laughs> FBI Academy auditorium um, back before we ended up doing them in other places. So, um, so we've got this compelling evidence in this oh, so the PowerPoint and, you know, we, we also want to authenticate all these pictures. And so there's another guy, uh, Westy Westmeyer out in Iowa has contacted the daughter of Harold Keller and, you know, look through his stuff. And so there's, we're getting more and more stuff. So, you know, I actually fly out to, to Iowa to, to confirm the provenance of, of the different photographs and the uh, articles and stuff in a scrapbook and all that sort of stuff. But in preparation for going out there, I was talking to uh, his daughter, uh, Kay Mara Kelly, or Kay Keller Mara. And um, you know, she was telling me stories about, you know, is it, her father never told her or her siblings that he was a flag raiser, but she knew he served in in, uh, in World War II and was on Iwo Jima and all that sort of stuff. And a platoon mate of Harold Keller, a guy named Richard Wheeler, um, who got wounded a day or two prior to, uh, I think it was D plus two, something like that, but uh, mortar uh, fragment to the jaw really jacked him up. But he gets medevaced. But he's a prolific writer and has written a couple of books about Iwo Jima, Iwo and Bloody Battle of Shirbachi and whatnot. And so he's, these are his buddies. And so, you know, he's reaching out to him to get kind of those firsthand accounts. And so Keller agrees to do, you know, record an audio a cassette tape for him and talking through it. And so uh, Kay is telling me about this, the daughter. And she says, yeah. Every time my dad would, you know, I thought he was getting ready to record, I would just kind of make myself really small. And he, but he, he would never record in her presence. Uh, she would even kind of pretend to like stomp out of the room and, you know, hide behind the door jam. And, you know, he would call it, hey, honey, I know you're still there. And so she never heard him record his experiences on, on Iwo Jima. Um, so we heard about this. So I, you know, I hear about this on the phone. And so a colleague of mine, um, uh, retired mass sergeant Stacy Passman. I'm relating this to her, and she goes, "That's fascinating." Hey, give me give me a minute. And so she takes off. Less than an hour later, she comes back and, and with a uh, Dick Wheeler uh, died in 2008. 
he lived with his sister, uh, Marjorie Maddox Wheeler, uh, or Wheeler Maddox, I think, um, up in Pine Grove, Pennsylvania. She has preserved his room just as it was. What the hell? And I'm like, and, and, and here's her phone number. I'm like, holy mackerel. I said, okay, hold on. So I grab the phone. I call her up and I said, ma'am, you don't know me from Adam, but uh, this is who I am. This is what I'm trying to do. Would you mind if we come up and look at your, your brother's uh, uh, books and materials and all that sort of stuff? And she grace, uh, graciously says, sure. Yeah. So I, I head up there and we go through the stuff in this room, just just a plethora of, of notes and different things for his books and whatnot. We go down into the basement and sure enough, in this unclimate controlled basement is a stack of audio cassette tapes. I'm like, holy mackerel. There they are. So uh, I asked to borrow them. She once again graciously says yes. We brought them back. We were afraid to play them because they were probably yeah, 40 years old at this point. They disintegrate and, is what they do. Yeah. Right? So we, we sent them out to a, a professional company. They digitized it and whatnot. And so I, I get the CD with uh, with Harold Keller's talking about his experiences on Iwo Jima. And, it, well, you know, who has a CD player anymore? I, I still have one in my car. It's old <laughs> enough. So I'm in my car playing the CD, and I hear this voice, this Midwestern, mid-century kind of draw, matter-of-fact, describing his experiences. Now, the son of a gun starts talking about, you know, after the flag raising. So it's not like he starts off with, yeah, after I helped raise the flag, right. uh, you know, the famous flag, uh, then this happened. But he starts talking about, you know, uh, you know, hearing the Japanese in the caves underneath them. And, and then uh, as they leave Suribachi and head north, and he talks about, you know, different times when his buddies get wounded or killed and, you know, it's almost a companion piece to a book called you know, Give Me 50 Marines Not Afraid to Die, written by Keith Wells, Lieutenant Keith Wells, who is uh, one of the platoon commanders. And having read that and kind of knowing the names and the stories and then hearing Keller talk about it, just fascinating. And so when I go out there to uh, meet with um, Kay, uh, Keller Marr, um, you know, after... You know, a day of going through the stuff, I said, hey, uh, I want you to give you a copy of the CD, but I want to make sure that um, it works. So if you could just start and make sure it's playing before I leave, because I don't want to leave you with a bad CD. And so we're down in her basement. She's sitting at the computer and there's a little bit of delay. So before he starts speaking, so there's kind of this, hey, is it working? And I'm standing behind her. So I can't see her face, but I, I can see the back of her head and her shoulders. And as soon as she hears her dad's voice, I could just see the emotion and how her shoulders came up and how her head moved. And, you know, she, you know, with the voice quivering with emotion, she's, she's like, oh, this is, this is fantastic. You know, his great grandson will be able to hear, you know, his great grandfather, um, and all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, um, that's when I told her, I said, hey, you might want to listen to the whole thing because I don't know how old your your, your grandson is, but uh, some of this really is age appropriate because <laughs> uh, he is a matter of fact about his experiences. And hearing him talk 
and relating those experiences, I could be talking, I could be listening to a Marine talking about his experiences in Fallujah. And it'd be very much the same. When I talked to some of my old buddies, you know, it's, it's that same sort of almost matter of fact kind of talking about it. But since he's talking to his buddy, Dick Wheeler, you know, it's a safe place. He can talk about those things. Um, but certainly things that he didn't share with his his uh, daughter and, and sons. As near as I can, probably didn't share it with his wife to any real extent, I don't think. Right. And so um, that was certainly a rewarding part of this as well. And getting to know these folks and then realizing, because, you, know, you know, as Marines, when we look into the, the future, it's this reverse perspective. So instead of everything getting smaller, the farther back it is, everything gets bigger, the farther we look, you know, the Vietnam vets are, are large and powerful men, but the, you know, the Korean war vets are a little bigger The world war II, Holy mackerel, the guys are raised, you know, fought on Iwo Jima and to come to realize that these are really young men. They're 18, 19, 20, 22, maybe. And they're platoon sergeants, they're squad leaders. They're, you know, and then I realized that hey, there are young men and women in the Marine Corps every day doing that sort of stuff today. So what it did reinforce to me is the, the type of person that we recruit hasn't changed. And that basic DNA of a Marine is still the same. And so, um, but was, was it hard? Let me ask you um, just empirically. You know, uh, Keller, is he is in, in terms of identifying now that you've done this so much, is he is it pretty clear cut? I mean, in your mind, I mean, is the evidence overwhelming that that it, that it's Keller? Because, again, it's like, are you kidding me? We screwed this. I mean, did, did nobody's right in the first in the initial identification that Gagnon makes. Is anybody correctly identified so in terms of who when, and where? When Gagnon does his initial one, he gets two people right. <laughs> well, three of what you had in Hayes. Right. Uh, so initially he gets two people right. Then he says, okay, this guy's Hayes. So he gets three people right. Um, earlier identifications when there's a tech sergeant beach, who's a combat uh, correspondent, uh, Marine, obviously, um, is trying to make additional identifications and he's talking to Gagnon. Uh, he tries to talk to Block, but Block's in the forward lines and and can't be can't be pulled back. Um, and Schreier, uh, Lieutenant Schreier, who led the, the patrol up for the first flag, uh, Schreier basically says, "Yeah, kind of whatever Gagnon says," because I don't know. He was, you know, he le- leads a 40, 42 man patrol up to the the, the uh, summit of Suribachi. He's got the first flag in his patrol. He doesn't know what he's going to meet. You know, is he going to meet intense Japanese resistance? But oddly, no. He gets over the lip of the crater. Well, and uh, I, I'd never seen the picture that you showed me yesterday, which is the litter bearers as part of the patrol that goes up yeah. the. I'd never seen that that picture, but they're at the tail end of the patrol, getting ready oh, to yeah. haul, haul guys that that are that are wounded uh, back down. Yeah, they. They thought they were going into a fight. And so, yeah, they definitely prepared for uh, casualties. So he sends, you know, Marines to the left, Marines to the right to secure the perimeter. And if he 
they look for a suitable spot for the flag, a couple of Marines, find a drain pipe. And Staff Sergeant Lou Lowry, uh, who's with the 5th Marine Division and Leatherneck back when it was manned by Marines, uh, is taking photographs. And so very sharp photographs of Schreier and the other guys in the 1st Patrol uh, fixing the flag to the, the uh, drain pipe. And then, you know, they, they show it where they're getting ready. I think it's Lindbergh is, you know, digging his heel into the, the ground, you know, just like you would if you were going to, like, get a little divot to, to plant the, uh, the flagpole. And you see Bradley clear as day. Um, in this case, it's his back as he's leaning in to uh, grab the flagpole. Other photos that Lowry shows, uh, takes, you know, you can see his face. Definitely identify him. He's got his two medical bags uh, strapped across him either side. So definitely a first flag raiser. Um, but Low- but we don't have a photograph of the actual first flag going up because Lowry is replacing his film cartridge at the time. So we got tons of photos at the beginning, tons of photos afterwards. He does a really good job of identifying who's in the photograph. So that's great. But when that first flag goes up, a lot of things happen at once. So... Uh, you know, the, the flotilla, the ships that support this landing, there are more ships in the Iwo Jima landing than there are in the United States Navy today. <laughs> and so when the ships start going off, it is just this cacophony of, you know, hundreds of ships uh, blowing their horns. Cheers come up from the beach. Uh, I read a, a quote from a Marine who says, yeah, I remember well. I looked up, saw the flag, and then I got shot. Um and then the Japanese come out of their holes up on the summit. And so now there's a pretty intense firefight that goes on, uh, a little bit of grenade exchange there. Lowry dodging a grenade, kind of slides 50 feet down, damages his camera. So uh, he's, he then later is you know, heading down the, the, uh, the slope uh, to go find a new camera. And, in fact, that's when he runs into Joe Rosenthal, Bill Janoust, and Private Bill Campbell, who are making their way up the slope. And, you know, Bill Janoust knows uh, Lou Lowry very well. So um, he says, yeah, hey, I just got some pictures of the flag up there. Uh, it's great. And then Rosenthal goes, oh, well, I guess I missed the flag raising. I'll, I'll just head on back. And Lowry says, nah, it's worth it You're going up there. It's a great view and all that sort of stuff. So there, there were a couple points where this thing could have never happened. That second flag, that iconic photograph never been taken. In fact, earlier in the day when um, Rosenthal is going ship to ship, he nearly, you know, goes into the drink there, you know, would have destroyed his camera then, but he manages to keep it dry. Uh, he takes the photograph there of, of – um, Secretary Forstall talking oh, really? to Alan Mad Smith, basically saying, you know, uh, you know, that Holland, that flag means another five you know, the Marine Corps for another 500 years. Fun fact, within 500 days, the Marine Corps is fighting for its survival as a, as a service. But um, then goes ashore and obviously uh, captures the photograph and all that sort of stuff. So um, Let me, I, another interesting part of this is, <clears throat> is Gagnon's a company runner. Right. And strength squad. Right. Is laying wire up to the summit. Right. So explain how those that whole thing, because Gagnon's not a part of that squad, you know. Right. Right. And so Gagnon just gets thrown in with them on a separate errand 
to the top. And we don't see Gagnon in too many pictures at the top. Do we see him at all? We don't. We That's don't. a great question. And let me get to that one. Okay. Um, but uh, I'll get everybody up to the summit first. So the uh, Schreier's um, – let me make sure I get the, the platoons right. Nick Schreier's uh, patrol is mostly third platoon uh, at an easy company. And then um, – so – the battalion commander, Chandler Johnson, tells easy company commander, uh, Dave Severance, hey, uh, I need you to send me a patrol to run wire up to the, the summit. So uh, Severance turns to Strank and says, hey, uh, Sergeant Strank, who's a platoon sergeant or a um, squad leader, they go ahead and form a patrol, uh, report to the uh, battalion CP, and you're going to lay wire. So Strank grabs three of his squad mates, uh, Corporal Block, PFC Southley, PFC Hayes, they report to the um, CP. At some point, the decision's made, hey, we're going to replace that smaller flag with a larger flag. And Johnson apparently says, and that flag belongs to the battalion. By gosh, I don't want the Secretary of the Navy or anybody else getting their hands on it. So he sends, this is all kind of all happening a little bit before. So he sends Lieutenant Tuttle over to find a flag. So Tuttle goes to LST 779 or and says, hey, uh, you guys got an extra flag I can use? And you know, I can just imagine the sailor going, why would I give you, Jarhead, a flag? You know, I said, well, if you give me a flag, it's going to be on top of Suribachi there. And so he says, ah, well, as a matter of fact, we, I have this holiday flag that I got out of salvage there at Pearl Harbor. You can use that one. So Tuttle brings that one back. Gagnon, meanwhile, is the battalion, uh, is company runner, battalion runner. It's kind of company runner to the battalion, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, is getting ready to run batteries up to replace the, the weakening batteries in um, Schreier's radio on the top. So he's already ready to go. Meanwhile, Strank and his wire laying detail are there at the same time. The flag shows up. So basically, Gagnon is given the mission, hey, carry that flag up there. Um, hey, Strank, tell Schreier, you know, I want that flag put up and I want the other flag brought back. So they're making their way up. Um, about 20, 30 minutes ahead of Rosenthal and those other guys. Uh, so they get to the top, you know, reportedly strength says something effective. Hey, the Colonel wants you to raise this flag. So you know, every son of a gun on this Island can see that, you know, on this cruddy Island can see the flag or, you know, words to that effect. And so here's where, you know, I layer my experience on, on this, you know, Schreier's, you know, he just got done with a firefight. The pictures are showing they're mopping up, um, you know, blowing caves and flame throwing and, and, and the like. And now he's got this mission to put up another flag. Well, any good lieutenant, and Schreier was a very good lieutenant, a former Raider, knows that if you want to put up a flag, you you don't figure out how to do it yourself. You go, Sergeant, put up a flag. And so he's got his ready-made working party there. And so I can, it's pretty obvious to me that, hey, Strank, get that flag ready to go. But then he says, where's the effect of, you know, wait for my signal because the first flag's already up. He wants to do the flag exchange so that that second flag goes up just as the first flag's coming down because he doesn't want anybody to think for a second that Suribachi has been retaken by the Japanese. And so it's all set up. In fact, there's 
kind of some reports of, you know, now there's a ton of photographers up there. I'm like, hey, Lieutenant, when are you going to put up the flag, you know? And it's kind of like, hey, shut up. <laughs> I'm doing this on my own pro, you know, my own time there and all that sort of stuff. And so they get everything ready and, you know, first flag comes down, second flag goes up. Campbell snaps a shot that shows both the, the flag come down and the flag coming up. And that's a very valuable photo because it shows you, you can see color. But when we looked at the photo with the Hewley board, you know, the second flag raisers are way in the background. It's really it's indistinct. It's not until you really blow it up that you can start seeing the camouflage pattern on his helmet the way his cross bandoliers are, the creases in his clothes, all which become almost fingerprint-like in yeah, terms talk of Talk about the significance of the camouflage patterns on helmets. You said that will ultimately become one of the great, great clues to everybody because it serves as a, uh, as a, uh, as a, uh, almost like a fingerprint. Uh, yeah, it's, so as you know, you know, camouflage patterns will repeat themselves over a bolt of cloth. But once you start sewing it into something, you know, as intricate as a helmet cover or even a blouse or something like that, where those blotches end up is it, it'll be a different place. And, you know, everyone, no two will ever be the same, kind of right. like snowflakes, I guess. Right. Um, and so where those blotches are, the shape, the size, the color, and then the creases that are naturally formed when you put a helmet cover on a helmet all become very distinct. And so you can identify, okay. I've got a photo here. That's Harold Keller. I see the photo of the camouflage pattern. Now I see this individual here, same camouflage pattern. Enough things start, cor you know, correlating that uh, that's very clear that that's, you know, if I identify him here, I can identify him there. What's, and what the amateur historians also uh, posited was that they, they think they identified Gagnon. Um, and in the Campbell photograph, where you see the first flag coming down or already down in the in the foreground, you see a Marine at the top end of the pole reaching for the flag. And he looks a lot like Gagnon, but we don't have any other photo of Gagnon on Iwo Jima that we can confirm going, okay, I've identified Gagnon, so I know what his uniform looks like. I can then compare and then correlate them to this this other individual. But we do have another photograph of the same guy. And the FBI was able to correlate uh, those two individuals. So there's another photograph. The, the Marine is smoking. You can see a K-bar. He's lightly laden. and um, Like a runner would be. Like a runner would be, exactly. And it's clearly him. The same guy is the guy reaching for the, that first flag. Got it. The, the uh, folks that brought us the attention said, and, hey, and you can see a mole on his right cheek. And if you look at photos where he's uh, a model for um, – um, just based on the, the sculptor. Yeah, um, Weldon. DeWeldon. DeWeldon. Um, you know, when he's modeling for him, you can see the clear as day of the mole. You can see him at the dedication ceremony. And you – you can almost see it in these photographs, but you know the FBI said, "Hey, that's at the green level. We can't really." They couldn't confirm that that is indeed a mole. Got but it. if you look at the basic shape of the chin, 
you know, kind of a, he's a slender guy, you know, he sure looks a lot like Gagnon to me. And I layer on top of that, that Gagnon had two missions that day. Mission one was take the second flag up to the top of Suribachi so it can be raised and then bring back that first flag. So it makes tons of sense to me that, you know, Hubie, he's already delivered the first or the second flag. Now he's reaching for that first flag to secure it. And we know because the adjutant tells us that he did return it to the battalion CP uh, that day. The other thing that adds to this a little bit timeline wise is after the second flag goes up, Rosenthal takes a handful of other photos and then he tells the Marines, hey, hey, can you guys get around the uh, the flag and, you know, we'll, you know, we'll whoop it up a little bit. You know, a photo that becomes known later as the gung ho photo. And so he, he takes that photo and we painstakingly go through and we identify who's in the photo. You know, there's we can see Lieutenant Schreier. We can see Ira Hayes. We can see, you know, Sergeant Strank. We can see Doc Bradley. We can see Keller. We can see Schultz in there. Um we can see Sousley. Block's not in there, and nor is Gagnon. And that bugged me during the Hewley board. I'm like, why aren't they there? If they've raised that second flag, they were part of that group. Why aren't they there? Well, it turns out that uh, a couple of other folks took similar photographs contemporaneously, but from different angles. So where you see the tuft of hair behind one of the Marines, Oh, and Hanson's in there too, by the way. Uh, but you see the tuft of hair there, and but you can't see the rest of them. But in another angle, you see more of them. And the FBI was able to correlate that person in the gung-ho photo with the person that's at the base of the flag in the Rosenthal photo, who we know to be Block. So Block is in the gung-ho photo. So, but still no Gagnon. But still no Gagnon. And we've identified Maybe he had, Maybe he was taking a leak or something. Could right. Be. I mean, something stupid like what accounts for yeah. because it, a but, runner would probably not go leave the top of Mount Suribachi. Right. And head by himself. He's going to. I think wh- he did. Oh, you do. I think he did. Because runners do it. Would often. That's a ballsy runner then. It, it, and I'll give him cred, you know. Right. Cred is for, uh, for ballsiness there. Uh, by now, though. My term, not they, yours, though, Kyle. <laughs> the uh, fair enough. Um, Suribachi is just crawling with Marines at this point, right. and and in fact, somewhere in this kind of same time frame, the uh, battalion chaplain, Father Suver, uh, is is having a mass. So this is crazy. <laughs> I'd never seen this photo either till yesterday. He says mass at like ten something in the morning, right? You said it like uh, it was probably. Well, the first flag goes up, uh, yeah, about ten twenty. So he's probably up there around eleven. <laughs> he's saying mass on Mount Suribachi. Yeah. That... <laughs> yeah, by noon, by noon or a little bit afternoon, he's he's saying mass. And there's there. Marines huddled around him, going to, going to church on top of Mount Suribachi. Marines going to church. Yep. You, got, you know, you got to yeah. you have to respect the Catholic uh, faith for that. The um, Kyle, you've been awesome in terms of being generous with your time. Um, uh, the last question I'll ask you is this. Um, the impact of the experience on you. Uh, what an incredible human experience. We've talked about, you know, uh, Rene Gagnon. And, 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 you know, again, here's a guy going up and down Mount Suribachi, maybe by himself. Uh, we talked about John Bradley. We talked about Ira Hayes. Their own personal 
stories. Uh, you talk about a very personal experience of standing behind, you know, Pi Keller's daughter. And, um, and so, um, talk about the experience for you. I mean, so the experience was multiple layers to it. So, you know, part of it's the history piece of it. Uh, and it's an iconic image. So, but frankly, it was just an iconic image, you know, and watching John Wayne and Sands of Iwo Jima, you know, as a kid, um, and getting all pissed off when Sergeant Stryker gets, you know, hit by the Japanese sniper there towards the end, but, um, required watching by the way, in the, in the Marine Brad's household. Um, so it went from really just an image to now, you know, I feel I know the stories of the Marines and the sailor sailors, uh, that participated in it. And so through all the research, it really humanized everything and it, you know, so no longer is it just this kind of, I don't want to call it sterile, but it's not just a black and white photo again. Now I know the fates of all the, the Marines and their platoon mates and, and whatnot. So it really humanized it and it reinforced um, just those themes of, you know, all Marines, you know, have similar DNA and, you know, I, I'll, I'll digress very quickly. Uh, I realize mindful of your time as well, but um, whole different war. So a Echo and Fox company uh, or a Delta and Fox company, uh, ba sorry, battery 211 Vietnam vintage guys uh, reached out to the battalion and said, Hey, would you mind if we just come out and visit the battalion? And I was, I was a battalion commander at the time. And I said, Hey, not only are you welcome to come visit, but you're our guests. And so we set up static displays and, you know, hosted them at Fiddler's Green, the regimental bar, um, and just really went all out to, to make, welcome them, make them feel. I said, hey, that, this is always your battalion. So, you know, I'm just a caretaker right now. And so then they, they were like, oh, hey, uh, you guys want to come out and have some beers with us out at the hotel? And uh, I'm like, okay, sure. Um, so I give the illegal order to my officers. I'm like, hey, Y'all are, your point of place of duty is out at this hotel, you know, all masking. It's just, just spend an hour with these guys and then, then you're free to go. And so as normally I'm working kind of late and, and whatnot. And so I, I finally get there and it's, it's been over an hour since the, the thing started and I'm expecting to be, you know, the only, the only young guy left there, you know, it's just showing up and, and, uh, all, all the officers were there. And they're talking to these Vietnam vets and exchanging stories. You know, a lot of them were Iraq, uh, veterans at that point. And they're exchanging stories. And that, what, 50-year divide God. didn't exist. It just evaporated. Right. And this kind of evaporated that divide, that 70-year-old divide uh, between where it was then and, and there. So um, that, that's probably the other big thing. And, and just getting to know you know, uh, Pi Keller's daughter and just kind of how she, you know, viewed her, her dad. And it was just, it's just a human story. It's a Marine story. So. Well, first of all, Kyle, um, I, I find all this, the humanity behind it very, absolutely fascinating. And, uh, and you've done a great job here today. Um, kind of 
hanging meat on on a on a structure and uh and and i want to thank you i i've enjoyed our i mean we did this for about i don't know close to three hours yesterday <laughs> just uh kyle walking me through a, a brief and, and again i just i i loved uh all of it so kyle thank you thank you thank you so much and uh hopefully our paths will cross some point in the future and uh if i'm back in quantico i'll certainly stick my head in but just want to thank you and say uh thanks for spending uh the morning with us and and for the education you've given me thank you so much hey my pleasure and semper fi all right semper fidelis How about that? I, if you can't tell, like I get, <laughs> I get geeked over stuff like that. How about the story of <clears throat> standing in the basement with uh, Harold Keller's daughter as she listens to her father's words for the first time? Yeah, I mean, and or even his story about, you know, the master sergeant who who tracks down. Richard Wheeler's family finds he lived with his sister. His room's the exact same as when he passed away. And all of his papers are in the basement. And then going and finding it. Yeah. No, it's a, you know, it's a story with a lot of, uh, again, it's just a, a compilation of human stories of their lives. Um, there's the sadness that you you know that you cannot help but feel um, for the Gagnon family, um, and uh, yeah, that whole saga. You know, to include uh, the conflict between the younger Gagnon and the younger Bradley. You know, uh, the younger Gagnon essentially celebrating when John Bradley is not in the picture. Rubbing it, rubbing it in the face of James Bradley, and then ultimately having the same fate happen to his father. So it, it's all that human drama. And again, to me, one of the most noble figures of the whole thing is is John Bradley in, the, in this whole story. Um, you know, that waits 70 years to be told and comes to light as a result of uh, a group of guys like Stephen Foley. Um, who are just amateur, none of them Marines, to my understanding. They're just uh, amateur historians and with access to the Internet. And uh, and software that digitizes photographs and allows you to blow them up and things like that. So uh, I think it's a fascinating story. And I just want to thank Kyle for coming on and, and doing that again. Um, very cool. It's not the last time you'll hear that story either. So, uh, on this Wednesday, 24th day of February, spring training started. Thank God. Once, even exhibition baseball starts, very little news will be seen (laughs) by me. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it's depressing. It's not only is the content of the news depressing but it is the manner in which it's collected and distributed is to me disgusting so our nation I think got some tough days ahead of it and hopefully it straightens itself out yeah 
We shall see, though. We shall see. So, on that kind of ominous note, sorry about that. Have a great day. If you're just tuning in, you'll hear uh, Colonel Kyle Gentry, United States Marine Corps retired, uh, talking about his participation in three different boards. Yeah, three different boards. The uh, the Hewley board times two. The first one was the one they looked into the allegation that John Bradley was not a member of the group of Marines that put up the first flag that Harold Schultz was. Second Hewley board, General Neller asked that board to, hey, sort out the first flag raising, right? Get the ground truth on who was in it, who was not was in it, who was not in it. And they did that. And then the third board is called the Bowers board. And that's when they look at the evidence presented uh, that was compelling. That um, Rene Gagnon was not in there. And then it was a guy by the name of Harold, nicknamed Pi Keller, who went home and never said a word about it. How crazy is that? Schultz goes home, never says a word about it. Amazing. Have a great day. Don't be afraid to change somebody's life. I'm out.